you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Church. Let's go ahead and jump into the word this morning. Uh, I'm really, really excited about what we're doing, and at the same time, I have a confession to make. I did not want to have to do this over the internet. I did not want to have to address this particular text over the internet, but this is where we are. So um, I'm fully aware that um, I'm going to offend some religious people this morning, and to be totally honest with you, don't tell them, I'm totally okay with that. What I'm nervous about, and the reason why I didn't want to do this over the internet, uh, really boils down to I don't want to harm anybody who may struggle in some of these areas uh, in their faith. And so uh, we're going to be jumping into something that I I don't want to spend a lot of time on this morning before I get to the message, but I need to sort of lay some groundwork. And here it is. We're going to be studying John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And there are some issues here because John chapter 7, verse 53, through John 8, 11. Um, you'll notice if you have a modern uh, translation, most all modern translations have this passage sort of set out in brackets. And there's this little note. If you have an ESV, it'll say this. The earliest manuscripts do not include 7, 53, through 8, 11. So that raises a question. What's going on here? Why does it say that? And, and so we get to address this topic, if you're into sort of scholarly stuff, this topic of textual criticism. And it's not something that I think is extremely valuable to spend a lot of time on on a Sunday morning, but when we come across these sort of texts, we need to address it. And so I want to address this before I jump into it for your benefit, because I don't want somebody coming to you and saying, oh, the Bible has errors. See, John chapter 8 isn't even in the Bible. How can you trust any of the Bible? I don't want some ponytailed college a community college professor who's teaching a Bible as lit class to be able to make you question your faith because there's no reason for that to happen. Uh, There's actually great, great evidence for the validity of the scriptures, and the fact that this is set up in brackets actually reinforces that. You see, we have thousands of manuscripts of the Bible from very, very, very close to when they were originally written. We don't have the original manuscripts. We don't have the original writing that John the Beloved wrote out this Gospel of John, but we have very early copies, and we actually have hundreds of those early copies. So what ends up happening when you have lots of copies of a text is two things happen simultaneously. Errors increase, but your ability to spot those errors also increases. I like the way Hank Hanegraaff puts it. If, if I were to write, handwrite a letter and give that letter to 10 of my friends and ask them to make handwritten copies of it, all of them would have errors. All of them would make mistakes compared to my original. But at the same time, none of them would make the same mistake. So you'd be able, by looking at all 10 of those copies, to see and find out what the original actually said. And that's what is evidence here in, in this passage. The early manuscripts that we have, the, the manuscripts, the copies of this that we believe are the oldest, don't have this little portion of the text. And so the belief is that it was added later. It's actually, it's, it's found in different places even sometimes in John, but most of the manuscripts have it here. And the earliest manuscripts that were available for the King James Version of the Bible 
had it included, so they included it, so it's still in ours. So this, this brings up, should we read this? Should we study this? Is it scripture? Should I even preach it? These are all questions that I've had. And, and I want to say this right up front. There are people much smarter, much more educated, who've given more of their life to study these particular issues out. And I think that these smarter, more educated, more equipped people um, should handle this topic. And I don't want to give myself uh, to, to this topic. I want to stay in the calling that God's given me, which is to teach his word to his people. And so I trust a lot of these people. And so I will say this, most modern scholars, the ones that, that uh, I respect the most, all tend to agree that this, was, this passage was not written by John and should not be included in the, the canon of Scripture. Now, there are some who would hold that it should be. Uh, one prominent person, he's not a modern scholar, he's a very, very, very old scholar, uh, St. Augustine, he believed that this should be included. He believed it was actually excluded in early copies because of just how scandalous the grace is in this section. And so, Here's what, what I've come to. After, after reading people that I trust, after doing this, as much study in this topic as I am equipped to do, here's what I'll say. I believe it is likely that this passage was not written by John, that the most likely thing is that it was added later. I believe, however, that this was a real account from the life of Jesus, that this, this account really did happen. However, it wasn't included in the Gospel of John. It was most likely included Later, possibly it was handed down through oral tradition, or it might be in another one of the gospels that is not included in the scriptures. Um, the thing you need to understand, though, about this particular uh, text is that it does not disagree with or contradict anything in the rest of scripture. So, by saying that it shouldn't be in this text, and by saying that I don't believe that is inspired scripture, it doesn't mean that there is not truth here that we can learn from. I believe there's actually a lot of great application that can be made from this text. So that puts me in a weird spot. As somebody who's been called to teach God's word, do I preach this this morning or do I skip over it? So here's what I've, here's what I've decided. If this were scripture, you would expect, if you've been with us for any amount of time, that I would probably spend about five to 10, maybe 18 weeks on these 11 verses. But what I've decided to do instead of that is just give it one week, to, to look at this text in one week and then move on, to not try to mine it because if it's not scripture, it's not worth our time mining it. However, I do believe that there are truths here that can be applied to our life from, or that rather this story can be used as an applying truth from other areas of scripture into our life. And just to make sure that I'm actually teaching the Bible this morning, what I'm going to do is read John chapter 8 verses 1 through 12. 12 we know is scripture, so, so you're still getting Bible even if 1 through 11 is not. But this way, uh, I'm not wasting time teaching things that most likely are not scripture. But however, if we're wrong and it is scripture, you still got to hear it this morning. So, so that's kind of what we're going to do. That's how we're going to handle this particular text. And so with all that being said, let's turn to John chapter 8 verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 12 together. Um, so let's go ahead. I'm going to ask you in your homes to stand for the reading of God's word as we get ready uh, to turn our attention to his word. We're going to go ahead and read this, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. It says this, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught 
in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, in the law, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Verse 12. Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray together this morning, church. Holy Spirit, we thank you. God, we thank you for your word. Even, even in moments like this where, where it's confusing and we have to sort of wrestle with, with issues, we thank you that you have given us your word. And I thank you that you have preserved your word for us. And we even have the ability to, to study it on that level. And I thank you right now for all of those who have given their life to, to the, the study and the critiquing and the, the, the real deep scholarly work that, that needs to go into that. And I thank you that we can trust uh, your scriptures. We can trust our Bibles. We can give ourselves to the, the rigorous reading of your word and wrestling with it. And this morning, God, I ask that you would breathe life upon your word. If, if all that we, is, we have read this morning is that one verse, breathe life upon that. And, and as we look at other passages and other scriptures this morning, breathe life upon that. Let it come alive in our hearing. Let it come alive in our hearts as we receive it. And let it come alive in our lives as we become obedient to it, being doers of your word, not just hearers. God, we want you to be glorified. And so we ask that you would give us the ability to walk in obedience to you that the world might know the good that comes from obeying you and the world might be filled a little bit more with your image and your glory and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and high-five your family before you grab a seat. High-five them, tell them you love them, and grab a seat. We're gonna go ahead and get to work this morning. So, so uh, one, one last thing I wanna just mention. My, one of my rules for myself as I've been teaching through the Gospel of John has really been to try to just stay in the Gospel of John, to just kind of stick with the Gospel and not track around to a lot of other passages, a lot of other verses. But, but this morning, in order to, to show that, that nothing in this passage contradicts other passages, but rather it's, it's actually... It, um, it's actually building those things up. It's actually reinforcing the truth found in other verses. I am going to throw out some references this morning just so that we have them in our hearing. And I may even read a few of them off my phone here that I've, I've written down just so that I'm not kind of jumping around throughout the scriptures this morning. But, um, but I want to go ahead and jump into this and just remind us. So, so the, the story, the account here is that Jesus is trying to do what God has called him to do and teach 
And, and at the same time, these leaders, these religious leaders are, are just set on trying to catch Jesus in a trap. They're trying to get him to say something or contradict himself or, or incriminate himself. And, and that's their goal. That's their hope. That's their whole drive and desire. And so, so these, these men bring this woman caught, it says, in the very act of adultery in front of Jesus into the temple and thrust her in the midst of this and demand Jesus pronounce judgment upon her. And so what we have here is Jesus' amazing response to that. And, and if you're taking notes, and I, I hope you are, I, I want to talk to you this morning under the title, In the Midst. In the Midst. She was in the midst of them. She was in the midst of a lot of things. And I think it's true for us as well. We, we are in the midst of a lot of things right now. And I think there's some parallels for us here as we dive into God's word in this passage. So, so I want to look at what she was in the midst of. I want to look at what she was caught up in. And, and the first thing that we see that she was in the midst of was she was in the midst of sin. Make no mistake about it, Jesus does not deny that, he does not diminish that, he does not try to sweep that aside. Jesus calls what she is in sin. There's one of the critiques of this passage is it seems to some that Jesus is making light of her sin, that he doesn't care about her sin. And that's not true. He calls it sin. He refuses to condemn her, but he calls it sin. She is stuck in this sin, she has been given over to sexual perversion, to, to a sexual intimate relationship outside of the covenant of marriage. And so she has is, she is committed sin. And what we need to understand about sin is sin leads to death in our life. Sin binds us. Sin causes us to be obedient to it. Sin is a, a crippling force in our lives. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, if you are in Christ, you are set free from sin. But when we are not in Christ, this verse makes it clear, we are actually enslaved to sin. She's in the midst of sin, and that sin that she's in the midst of is, is, has overcome her and is enslaving her. 2 Peter 2.19 tells us that, that whatever overcomes a person, that enslaves them. And that's exactly what sin does in our life. She's in the midst of sin. And she's taken from the midst of sin and she's thrust into the midst of religion. Into the midst of a bunch of people who are more interested in legalism and more interested in judgment. And here's what we need to understand about religion. Religion can only bring condemnation. Religion can only bring condemnation. All it can do is try to condemn us and keep us away from Jesus. And that's exactly what these people are trying to do. They're trying to get her to be condemned, and they're trying to catch Jesus. And that's what religion does. And when I say religion, I don't mean going to church. I don't mean reading your Bible. I don't mean prayer. What I mean by religion is any attempt from us to try to earn or merit our standing with God. Any attempt that we make, any, any, any effort or energy or striving that we try to put in, that we think, well, if I just do this, then I'll somehow be worthy of God. Or if I just do this, I'll somehow earn the fact that I'm in a relationship with God. And, and the truth is, Jesus makes it clear that that is not possible. That is not possible. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. 
since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, all they were able to do is point out her sin and point out her sin and point out her sin. They weren't able to actually help her get out of her sin. If sin binds us and sin overwhelms us and sin enslaves us, religion, beloved, is not the answer. Trying to earn or work our way out of that slavery is never going to cause us to come out of that slavery. Religion, you see, promises peace and happiness, but will produce only condemnation and rejection in our lives. It will keep you in your sin and will keep you from Jesus. That's what religion does. Religion causes us to live in these, these cycles of sin and striving, and sin and striving. And I'm here to tell you, I have very good news for you. The gospel of Jesus frees you from the cycle of sin and striving. It frees you from this bondage of, of religion. It frees you from the bondage of sin, and it, it causes us to walk free in him. And we're going to get there. I'm preaching ahead of my own notes, but it's just too good to not get there already. I need you to understand that, yes, sin cycles like sin and striving are the, are the byproduct of religion, but the byproduct of the gospel is a life lived free in Christ. And this, this, this kind of this sin cycle of sin and striving and sin and striving, it leads to shame. And that's the next thing that I think she was in the midst of. She's in the midst of shame. She is standing accused and exposed. And, and I know we're kind of all in on these family mornings. So I'm going to be as PG as I can right now. She's caught in the very act of adultery. So we have no idea just how exposed this woman may actually have been standing in the midst of all of these people. She's, she's grabbed and she's drugged into this, this little makeshift court and thrown before Jesus and thrown before her community and thrown before the city and thrown before all these leaders. And she's exposed and she's ashamed. But here's the amazing thing. She's ashamed, but the, the, the story tells us that everybody else in this circle is about to become ashamed as well. We see here the limits of conviction, though. She's ashamed, and they're ashamed. As Jesus moves to, 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 to kind of engage this, he's, he's not engaging it head on. He's engaging it very wisely. As they're throwing out accusations, I love the way it says it. He, he, he leans over, and he begins to write in the dirt. Now, I don't know what he wrote. We have no idea. The truth is, if, if this story is an accurate account of something that actually happened, this is the only evidence we have that Jesus ever wrote anything. Stop and think about that for a moment. Almost all historians will agree that nobody has shaped human history more than Jesus. And Jesus never wrote down anything except for apparently, according to the record, a few things in the dirt. But what he wrote, whatever he wrote was powerful enough to cause these people to flee. One commentator I read said he believes that Jesus as, as he knelt down the first time, wrote out I, uh, some passages from the Old Testament talking about the fact that if we abandon the Lord, we are as good as an adulterer. And then as he knelt down the second time, maybe he wrote the names of all these people gathered around. We don't know what he wrote, but his simple interaction of calling them and showing them that they are not without sin either. They are not without, they are not pure and spotless. They cannot stand as impartial judges against her. Their conscience is just as flawed and fallen and false as hers. See, shame is an important factor here because, because while, while it is at work in both of them, it actually has very different results in both of these different groups. 
to them, to the, to the men gathered around, to these leaders gathered around, they all flee from Jesus at shame. But she stands, it says. She stands in the midst. Even in the midst of her shame, something in Jesus draws her toward him, even though she's filled with shame. And this is where we have to understand that, that our conscience is a good thing, but it is flawed. And so I like to say it this way. A conscience is good, but the Holy Spirit is better. And so she responds to something in Jesus. And we see this. This is normal for us to, to have our sin exposed in the presence of God. In Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees a, a picture. He sees a glimpse into heaven, and he sees God seated on the throne. And this is how he responds in verse 5 of chapter 6. He says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim, that is an angel, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, I want us to see a very, very, very important thing in that Isaiah passage. His shame, his, his sorrow over his sin. He says, woe is me. In the ESV, it says, I am lost. The, the, best, the best, most visceral translation of what he actually says is, I am undone. I am broken apart. He was broken over his sin, but that brokenness, that shame, that conviction wasn't enough to actually change his circumstances. See, I think for too long, we've allowed religion to come into our life and make us feel ashamed and then let that shame only produce within us a desire to try harder. And I'll just strive more this week than I did last week. I'm here to tell you, I love you enough to tell you this. If you could try harder and have it work, you would have done it already. Your trying harder would have produced freedom by now. The reality is you, you, you don't just need to try harder. We say it this way around Sozo. It's not about trying harder. It's about trusting more. It's about leaning into Jesus and trusting him. See, Isaiah didn't just need to feel sorry for his sin. He needed his sins atoned for. And that's what Jesus came to do. And that's where she ends up. She starts in sin. She goes to religion. She falls. She's, she's in the midst of, of sin. She's in the midst of religion. She's in the midst of shame. And now, after Jesus causes all of these people to flee, she's now simply, come on, this is the good part, in the midst of Jesus. It's just her and Jesus. And I, I believe this. This is exactly where he wanted her to be the whole time. He wanted to get her alone with himself, just, just, just her and him for a moment. I think he wanted her to uncover what David uncovered in Psalm 17, verse 8, where, where he cries out and asks the Lord to hide me in the shadow of your wing. He's extending the James 4, 8 invitation of draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. She's drawn near, so now he's drawing near to her. You see, God desires intimacy with us. We talked, we've talked a lot in, in the Gospel of John so far about the fact that we are sons of God. 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 says, you are all sons of God. And, and maybe you're new with this, and so I just need to clarify some of this. The scriptures make it clear that we are all sons of God. I know some of you who are tuning in this morning are, are, are ladies. But the reality is the scriptures use the word, the New Testament uses the phrase sons for all of the people of God. It calls us all sons. And the reason it does this is because sons get an inheritance. And God wants you to know that regardless of your gender, you get an inheritance in Christ. You are a son of God. You have the, the rights and the, the, the authority and the responsibility of a son. And that's part of the good news. But it also tells us in the scriptures, in places like Ephesians 5, through 33, especially in, in verse 32, that we are the bride of Christ. So we're both. And these are both different aspects of what the redemptive work of Christ does for us. And I like to say it this way, ladies, if you are offended by the thought of being a son of God, I, I guarantee you it is much harder for me to think of myself as a bride than it is for you to think of yourself as a son because nobody wants to see me in a wedding dress. It's just not, it's just, it's just not a pretty thought. So, so the reality is, in this passage, we're actually seeing more of the bride heart of the people of God and, and, and his desire to have intimacy with us. You see, she was stripped now of all of the things, all the idols that she tried to hide behind. She was void of any ability to insulate and isolate herself from God. Everything had been stripped away. And she stays with Jesus. And I, I want to I take a moment, because I believe this with all of my heart in this season, that Jesus is trying to do the same thing to his people today. He is trying to strip away everything else in our life. Listen, he has done it quite magnificently, if you ask me. He has stripped away all the things that we try to isolate ourselves from him. He has taken away all of the idols in our life. Now, you say, you say, hey man, I don't have any idols. I don't have any little like wooden sculptures in my house that I bow down and worship. And that hopefully is true uh, that you don't. But when we say idols, we're not just talking about carved images that we worship. When we say idols, here's what I mean by idols. An idol is anything in our life that we look to for ultimate security, identity, intimacy, or felicity. Anything that I look to to say, this is how I know I'm going to be safe. This is how I know I'm going to be secure. This is, if I have this, that I know I'm safe, that I know I'm solid, that I know things aren't going to be shaken in my life. Or things that we say, no, if I have this, that I know who I am. This is what tells me I am who I am. Maybe it's a car. Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's an ability. Maybe it's something you own. I don't know. Maybe it's a job. But if you just have that, then you feel like you. That's the identity piece. Or maybe you look to these things for intimacy, for that, for that need that you have for intimacy. We go to all sorts of other things for that. Or maybe felicity, which is just a fancy $6 word for, for great, overflowing, abundant joy. And we look to other things for our joy. When we go to those things, anything for ultimate security, identity, intimacy, or felicity. When we go to any of those, anything for ultimate experience of those, those things are idols. And in a moment, the Lord has taken all of those away from his people. Just stop and realize all sports are done. All, all, 
All events have been canceled. Concerts are done away with. Friendships are, are being pushed to the side. Even our health, our, our health sometimes can become an idol. It's gone. Our finances are, are wrecked in many cases. Some people who put their trust and their faith and their security in the stock market are riding a roller coaster right now. Even, even some, and I, I think this honestly, this is, this, is, this is a reality check here for a moment. Good things, when they are elevated to ultimate things, become idols, when they become a God in our life. And I'm, I'm here to just tell us, as Americans, one of the idols in our life is our supposed freedom. And even that is slowly being pulled away from us, where we don't even, we're not even sure next week what we're going to be allowed to do by our government. All of these things are being stripped away from us. Our future is being stripped. You can't even plan for the future very well right now. Your ability to travel around the world is all being stripped away. And here's what I'm telling you. There's a purpose in Christ for all of that. He's trying to get his people alone with him. Just like this woman trying to strip away all the things that we hide behind. All the things that we insulate ourselves from him. He's trying to get us alone with him. Even, I, I want to be just transparent with you this morning. Even here and now, while I'm having to preach to an empty room, he's even stripping the idol of church away from us. Do we love Jesus or do we love gathering with a bunch of people? Do we like the crowd? I, I've even had to struggle with this. I, I've told my wife several times throughout all this, I did not get into ministry to preach into a camera. I swore, I, I swore that I would never be a TV preacher, and yet here I am on some of y'all's TVs. I want to thank everybody who just leaves me on their phone or their iPad, because that's slightly less TV preacher. But is it an idol? Is preaching to a crowd, I've had to ask myself, is preaching to a, a, a live congregation, has that become an idol in my life? So here we are with Jesus now stripping away all these idols. And, and a question that comes up then is if she had all these idols in her life, this sin in her life, why did he not condemn her? Why, didn't he, why does he say, neither do I condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Well, I have a few thoughts on that. I just want to throw out real quick. First, Jesus says he did not come as a judge. That's not why he came this time. That's not the role that he was sent to earth by the Father to execute in this coming. In the coming that we're seeing here, he did not come as a judge. He came to call all of us to himself. He did not come as a judge. I think that's part of why he didn't condemn her. But also, the second reason, I think, Leviticus 20.10 requires both the man and the woman to be stoned. Again, PG here as much as I can. It, it, there's an old saying, it takes two to tango. It takes two people to commit adultery. Where was the man? So there, there can be no adultery if it's just her. So the law required it, but yet it required both to be there. So where is the man? So he's not, he's not breaking the law by not, condemn, by not having her stoned. He's also not saying that in order for justice to be carried out, people have to be perfect. I want to be clear on that too. This passage is sometimes used to, 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 to sort of be propped up in the area of social justice and say, well, see, we can't condemn anybody and we shouldn't say anything's wrong because we all have issues in our own life. Listen, we may or may not all have issues in our own life. The truth is still the truth and righteousness is still righteousness. Jesus is actually holding them up to the actual standard of the law, not allowing them to just condemn the one that makes them uncomfortable. 
I read one commentator on this this week that I, I was fascinated by. He pointed out something that I hadn't really thought about. They said that they caught her in the very act of adultery. The question is this, how did they know where to look? This commentator suggests that she may have actually been a prostitute and that some of the men in that very circle may have visited them herself. And so that's why they didn't grab the man, they just grabbed her because she made them uncomfortable. She was a liability. They brought her before them. Jesus is not going to engage in their little game. He holds them up to the actual standard of the law. Also point out here, uh, the uh, third reason is that, that it required witnesses. So when he says, oh, is there anybody left to condemn you? Do you have any witnesses here that can, that can condemn you? Nope. Okay, well, then I have to throw your case out. Fourth reason, the scriptures tell us that mercy always triumphs over justice. Mercy triumphs over justice. And, and, and the, 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 the final reason I think he didn't condemn her is because he did condemn her sin. He does not make light of the reality of what's going on in her life. He doesn't say that, oh, it's okay that you committed adultery. It's not really, it's fine. You just go ahead and go on, do whatever you're going to do, and I'll just keep forgiving you. That's not what happens. He calls what she does sin, which leads us nicely into the last thing that she was in the midst of. She was in the midst of sin, then she's in the midst of religion, then she's in the midst of shame, then she's in the midst of Jesus. Here's the cool part. It doesn't end there. She then moves into being in the midst of freedom. Jesus shows her the way out. This is why I wanted to read verse 12. Because I think when it's tied to this passage, it actually is an amazing picture. So, so let me just walk us through this real fast. So he, he addresses her and he says, is there anybody left to condemn you? She says, no. So he says, go and sin no more. And then if this account is accurate, what he did was he turned straight around and spoke to the crowd and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Did you catch that? What he does is tell her, go and sin no more. And then he shows her how to go and sin no more. He shows her how to walk in freedom. He says, follow me. Learn to be a son. Be and stay close to your husband. Be with and stay close to your real husband. You don't need all these idols in your life, all these other places that you've looked for, for security and identity and, and intimacy and felicity. You find all of that in me. You follow after me. I am the light and I will make you a light. And we're going to talk a lot about this verse in the weeks to come. But, but for now, I want us to see that this is, this is a, the instruction that he gives her so that she doesn't have to continue to live in sin, so she doesn't have to be in this cycle of, of sin and shame and sin and shame, but she can walk in freedom through intimacy with him. Follow me, he says. Follow after me. Learn to be both a son by behaving like me and learn how to be a bride by being intimate with me, he says. He calls her to himself. Galatians 5 verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. 2 Corinthians 3 17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Romans 8 verses 1 and 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set 
you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That means that cycle of sin and cycle of death is done in our life. It's over with when we are in him, when we learn to walk in that intimacy with him. And then last one I'll read you is 1 Peter 2.16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. See, Jesus doesn't just cover up her sin, but rather he shows her how to be free. I like to say it this way. Grace is not Jesus throwing up his hands and turning a blind eye to our sin, but rather grace is Jesus rolling up his sleeves and staring our sin in the eye until it is obliterated. Jesus deals with her sin by bringing true freedom into her life, the freedom of the intimacy of the bride, the freedom of the presence of the Spirit in her life, the freedom of being a son of God. And so Jesus steps into this and says that he's the light, and by being with him, we become lights as well. I hope you see this morning that that whether this, this passage, this account actually happened or not, there's some deep truths in here for us to apply from outside scripture. And this story lays it out nicely. So so as we kind of move to close now, as we sort of move into our response, and like I said last week, we're gonna have some time to respond. So please don't go anywhere. We wanna still take some time to engage with the presence of God, to engage with the spirit of God. And let what we've heard this morning move deep within us, take some time for, for contemplation and celebration to allow the Spirit of God to work these things into our life. I think this morning, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, let's get real and let's get honest. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to expose any idols that may be in our life. I know know this might sound a little contradictory to what some preachers are saying right now, but I wonder if some of us are crying out for God to end this virus and end this stay-at-home order because we're desperate to get back to our idols. And I think the Lord wants to to deal with those idols in our lives, deal with those idols in our hearts today, right now. So I want to encourage us to to do the dangerous thing and just ask the Holy Spirit, just say, search my heart. If there's anything left in there of idols from the old me, ask him to purge those things from our life and to give ourselves this week to pursuing personal intimacy with him. Listen, we, we've got the time. We have the time right now. Let's give ourselves to intimacy. Let's give ourselves to spending time with him, not just in moments, but in every moment. Yes, I think it's good and right and healthy to take some time at the beginning and the end of each day and set our attention and set our affection upon him. But those should just be calibration moments so that we constantly go back to that over and over and over again. And I promise this homework during this time. Since we've got the time, I promise this homework. Here's your big homework. It's a big one this week. Study the book of Galatians. Study, read through the book of Galatians this week. Take some time and read through it. I think it's amazing what you'll discover in this this amazing uh, book, this amazing uh, account of this letter, rather, that Paul writes to the church in Galatia. There's six chapters here, so so maybe start tomorrow and read one every day this week and just take some time, and I think you're going to find the power of the gospel there. I think you're going to find the reality of the difference between law and faith, 
law, and grace. And you're going to find out this amazing truth. And here's what it is. If you have repented of your sins and are trusting Christ, you're not only free from sin, but, the, but Galatians is going to teach you, you're actually the righteousness of God in Christ. And that's a powerful truth that we need to grab a hold of and learn how to walk out. So as we move now to into our response, I, I would be derelict in my duties if I didn't just stop for a moment and just make sure that you are aware of just how good Jesus is. Now, I don't know whether that's a truth that you know in your life or not, but the reality is this, that Jesus is better than everything. And maybe you're, you're, you're listening to this this morning or, or some other time, I have no idea, but if you're listening to this, if you're seeing me right now, here's what I need you to understand. Every other thing in your life that you are looking to for security, for identity, for intimacy, and for felicity, all of those things are ultimately going to let you down. They are all attempts, whether you are aware of it or not, they are all attempts to try to fill a void in your heart and build a wall to keep Jesus away. We, in our sin, we try to build a wall to keep him out because we are afraid, we are ashamed, and we, like the crowd, often try to run away from him, but he is at work right now in this moment, and he is asking you to stand. He's asking you to stand there. He's trying to get you alone with him. I don't know if you're in a room full of people or if you're listening to this in headphones, but the heart of the Father was to send Jesus that the Spirit might be at work, all of God at work to try to get you alone with him. He's trying to get you back to him. He designed you for intimacy with him. He designed you to know him and walk with him, not just at church, not just on Sundays, not just in a moment, but every moment of every day. And sin creeps into our life. Sin binds us and blinds us and it, and it corrupts us and it causes us to be afraid of the one that we were built for. And so praise be to God who sent Jesus to bear the weight of our sin, to bear the punishment of our sin and make a way for us to be brought back into that intimate relationship that we are designed for. And so by Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, by his death, by his burial, come on church, by his resurrection, we are made right before the Father. And the scriptures tell us it's super simple. We believe on him. That word believe, I talked about this a few weeks ago, doesn't just mean that I agree with him, doesn't mean that I, I acknowledge that he existed. No, this belief is us entrusting him. We look to him for our security. We look to him for our identity. We look to him for our, our intimacy. We look to him for our felicity. We're secure. I'm secure in all this, not because I know how this whole uh, virus pandemic is going to end. I'm secure in all this because I know the one who holds the end. I am who I am, not because there's a crowd of people to listen to me preach. I am who I am because of who Christ says I am. You are who you are because of who Jesus says you are. We look to him for the intimacy that we so need. Maybe you're feeling very isolated and separated. Run to Jesus in that moment. We trust in him. To believe in him is to look to him for intimacy and to look to him for ultimate joy. If you're here this morning, if you're listening to me, and you, you would be honest and say that you have not believed in Jesus, you are separated from him, I'm, I'm, I'm begging you this morning to repent that word repent, I know it's a, it's a weird church word. Here's all it means. It means to admit and abandon your sin. 
to admit and abandon all the things that you've looked to for, for security, for identity, for intimacy, for felicity, to just admit it. I have looked to all of these things. I've looked to this. I've looked to that. I've run here. I've gone there. I've watched this. I've drank that. I've consumed this. I've used this, whatever it might be in your life, and abandon them. Let them go. Like Jesus said, go and sin no more. Just let it go. And the Bible says we repent and we believe. We entrust. We say it this way. We admit and abandon our sin and we embrace Jesus. And I'm pleading with you this morning, please don't wait another moment. If this situation that we're in right now has taught us nothing, it's that we are not guaranteed tomorrow. We cannot control what tomorrow will look like. Right now, right where you are, you don't need me to teach you a prayer. You don't need, you don't need to raise your hand. It wouldn't do any good anyways. I can't see you. What you need is to cry out to Jesus, to admit and abandon your sin and to embrace him. And I'm pleading with you to do that. And if you are doing that, will you please let us know? Will you please get a, get a hold of us any way you can? Any way you can. Anywhere you find us online and there's a way to get a hold of us. If that's through, if that's through Facebook Messenger, if that's through email, if that's through our website, if that's through you know, Instagram or, or YouTube, whatever it might be, let us know because we want to get some resources into your hand. We want to be going to be able to pray for you. We want to be able to stand with you and come alongside with you. Even though we'll, we can't stand with you, we want to stand with you. We want to be there for you and help you along in this journey. For the rest of us, I want us to just take this time as we, as we move into our response and just ask the Holy Spirit to do some work in our hearts. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to close. Let's pray together this morning, church. Holy Spirit, I thank you. Holy Spirit, I thank you that, that even though sin may be present in our lives in one season, and even though religion might not offer any hope, and even though shame may try to pull us away from you, Jesus steps in in that moment and brings freedom. And I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you would grant freedom to some here today, that you would grant repentance to those who are far from Jesus, that they would draw near in this moment, that they would stand. God, that one that, that, that just has wanted to shut this off the whole time and just turn it off and turn away. God, that you would continue to move in his heart, even if he already has, even if she already has, and she's not even listening, he's not even listening anymore. Holy Spirit, would you still be at work in their heart and bring repentance into their life? Lord, for, for your people, God, would you, would you expose any areas of our life where we're still, we're still running back, looking for a security, looking for identity, looking for intimacy, looking for felicity in areas that are just not ever going to satisfy. Lord, we talk about the reality that they don't satisfy, but the other truth of it is, it is an offense to you as we run to those other things. And for that, God, we repent again, even as your people. And we ask that you, you show us the freedom that is ours in Christ that you teach us how to walk out that freedom, that we would, we would live as sons of God, walking in freedom. We would live as the bride of Christ, living in intimate relationship, intimate fellowship with you. God, that we would give you, Jesus, that which you paid for, which is a bride, that we would give ourselves to you as a bride, give ourselves to you in intimacy, give ourselves to you fully and completely. God, that you would do a mighty work in your people in this season. God, let us come out of this season. When we come back together as a church, I pray that our, our, our corporate intimacy would have increased because we would learn how to be the church, not just attend church. 
Lord, in Jesus' name, we thank you for this. And God, I bless those who are watching as we move to response in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's respond to the Lord.